welcome to Back from the Abyss. I'm Dr. Craig Heacock. This is the second of two stories about caring for adult children with severe mental illness. Today, Dave and Lori share their journey through the denial, the fear and grief, and eventual acceptance of their son's life-altering psychiatric illness. It was a very moving experience to record with them. I am their son's psychiatrist, and I've witnessed their profound pain firsthand as we all have tried to work together to find some measure of peace for their son. I also think their story contains a lot of hope and wisdom for families facing the reality of an adult child with life-altering mental illness. The death of one life path and the grinding emergence of a new, completely unforeseen, and at times frightening and even overwhelming life path. Dave and Lori have largely emerged from this abyss, and they have so much to share with all of us. All right. So the way that our uh, our son's illness manifested itself originally, everything was going very well in elementary school, junior high, high school, and, and college. Uh, he was an an ideal son. He uh, he was very proficient academically. He uh, uh, he was musically inclined, and he also was really into sports as well and just very, very passionate about everything that he did. And, and interestingly, looking back now, I think it was interesting that um, he was kind of the social hub in his, in his little clique, and he was the one who got everyone together. So that's where we were. He went off to college, and then things went fairly smoothly through college. He spent five years down at CU and ended up getting two pretty complicated degrees. So um, we thought everything was on track. Things were looking very promising for him. And then we kind of took a little bit of a left turn, and maybe I'll let Lori talk a little bit about how that occurred. So the end of college was kind of a changing point uh, that we noticed. We saw that he struggled at the end of that time period with a breakup in a relationship that he had with a girl. That was traumatic. He was trying to graduate um, with two degrees. He had an incident in one of his classes where he was questioning the prof, wanted to tape record the prof. And I, looking back, I think that might have been part of the feeling influenced and feeling attacked and feeling, to, feeling like he needed to prove that the prof was wrong. So that kind of gave us some hesitation as far as what is going on here. Um, and then he came home after college and kind of showed some signs of depression and kind of like would put his sweatshirt on and stay in his room. And our daughter was around at that time. And she and I talked about the fact that he just wasn't acting right. He was more sullen and just kind of, we could tell something was wrong. So we kind of dealt with that. And then he got motivated to go look for a job in Boston. And what I remember telling him is, is that's great, but it's better to have a job before you go there than um, to show up and hope to find a job that will pay for everything. So we, um, as a couple, decided we weren't going to support that, but if he wanted to try it, go ahead, try it. So we went to Boston. He found a job in a restaurant. He lived in an Airbnb there. 
that went okay. I'd say the total time he was in Boston was about 18 months. Uh, we visited him at one point. Things seemed to be a little off, but okay. And then our, our daughter graduated in December. He came to that graduation and he looked completely different. He looked disheveled. He was distant. He was lost. I just, I remember I was just absolutely shocked. Long story short, uh, we felt that he needed to move back home with us. He was hesitant at first, but I think he knew something was wrong. So he came home with us, and that's when we probably had the worst year of our life. We knew there was something very wrong, um, and we encouraged him to see a psychiatrist or a counselor. We knew he needed something to help him focus. He was a changed person in a lot of ways. He decided that he was not going to take medication or see any type of counselor. Yeah, the um, the first thing that was really, I think, traumatic for us was uh, he was, was still driving, of course, and uh, he would uh, go out and, and just drive around a little bit after he got back. And we suddenly got a call one day from the police that our son had been talked to by, uh, by an officer for his driving behavior in that he had followed a car for uh, a great distance and just kept honking his horn at them. And the, uh, the people, of course, an elderly couple, uh, were frightened by this and, and didn't know what to make of it. So that was the first real, very strange incident that, that we had. Which was kind of a blessing in disguise because that police officer knew something was wrong and then he was taken to be evaluated at an ER and went to the psychiatric hospital here for Collins. They evaluated him then. He still refused to take medication. We had a, a doctor who's a friend come and talk to him, try to influence him to take meds. Nothing convinced him. So they basically said, sorry, we can't keep him here. We're going to have to send him home because he refuses and, and he's an adult and you can't make those decisions. So he came back home. We had more incidences of him running away, getting out of the car, trying to get out of the car while we were driving on the interstate, tried to get to the airport, was asking people for money, all these kinds of things. So we kept asking him to take meds. He wouldn't do it. Can you help me remember the next thing? Sure. Yeah, and and then um, we ended up in another emergency room situation late at night, and uh, and ended up back at at the um, psychiatric hospital, Mountain Crest, here in Fort Collins, and and they did a fabulous job, and that was probably his first real diagnosis there, and for me, it, it was eye opening in that. I was probably the one who was in the most denial through this whole Absolutely. process. And um, Lori and our daughter were um, trying to impress upon me that, that he was having issues. And I was just convinced, determined that he just needed to work through it. But um, through these breaks that he would have, 
uh, it became clear that he needed some um, some treatment. So when he was in the hospital again for a few days, we were really at wit's end in terms of trying to get him to to take medication. He'd he'd always, as I said, taking care of his body. He wasn't um, a substance guy in any way. I mean, barely would would have a beer in college and not a. Uh, a drug user or anything. So, uh, you know, he always viewed himself as an athlete and uh, tried to eat well and so forth. So he, he didn't want any part of medication. And ultimately what, and, and this might be a tip, ultimately what helped was convincing him that we could ultimately get a court order to um, have him medicated and and that that would be permanently on his record and you know may impact his appointment employment long term so he still had enough cognitive ability to recognize that he wasn't comfortable with that mm-hmm. and um, but you had to threaten legal we, yeah we we action. essentially had to had to threaten him and then he ultimately did agree so that was kind of the first treatment breakthrough i think I also wanted to add that I was probably the most scared I've ever been in my life when he became so psychotic that he was demanding money. He became very aggressive with Dave. I don't know that Dave wanted me to call 911, but I called 911 and hoped that they would they would listen to me and take him somewhere, but they they said that they didn't have just cause to do that. So the reason I'm adding that is because it became so bad that I was I was fearful for my life and Dave's life. And what ultimately brought him to that second hospitalization was he thought he was dying of brain cancer. So we got him to go to the ER, and then they evaluated him and brought him to Mountain Crest. But at this point, your your son had said, "I'll see a doc and potentially take meds." Yes. So he he agreed to take meds um, at the closure of the uh, the hospital setting. So he was, I, I think, his first med was alonzapine, mm-hmm. and he agreed to do that and and was was taking some there, and. We ended up finally getting in, and fortunately, the uh, the relationship with the psychiatrist was really good. He he was he developed a comfort level, and this psychiatrist was not confrontational, was very collaborative, and so forth. and And that definitely uh, seemed to work at at that point in time. So it was kind of a long journey taking different psych medications. And we kind of were at a standstill as far as anything making a difference. It was one had this side effect, the other had another side effect, just kind of going along with that. And then uh, the psychiatrist that we were seeing said that he was going to take a leave of absence, I believe that was the reason. And um, Dr. Heacock was taking over for him. And we didn't know anything about Dr. Heacock, but we said, great, we we want to see someone who can help us while this other doctor was gone. I first met Dave and Lori's son in 2016. He came to me with a diagnosis of schizophrenia with two failed trials of olanzapine and risperidone and ongoing severe and disabling psychotic symptoms. In the mental status exam that day, I wrote, quote, staring away from me, flat, blunted affect, long delays in answering, thought blocking versus poverty of thought, derailing thought process, 
no spontaneous speech, end of quote. Given the failure of two antipsychotics, I recommended clozapine, which back from the abyss listeners are surely familiar with, as I featured it in the very first episode, as well as each of the psychopharmacology episodes. Clozapine is, hands down, the best antipsychotic, the best mood stabilizer, and the best sleep med on the planet. And although patients and even docs might shy away from the requirement for regular blood draws to monitor for possible bone marrow toxicity, clozapine is one of the bona fide miracles in psychiatry. Just five weeks later, after starting on clozapine, here's what I wrote in the mental status exam. Quote, much more able to communicate and complete sentences today, less fearful, irritability resolved, still with very little eye contact and impaired insight, his ideas of reference persist, but overall much more able to engage with me and in treatment planning, end of quote. A note here, ideas of reference refers to the psychotic symptom of seeing and sensing special signs and messages, often of an ominous or even frightening nature. And as we'll hear later in this story, even with clozapine, he still struggles a lot with feeling, as he calls it, influenced. Influenced by screens and media and forces outside of his home. I wonder if we might just shift away from his treatment, for, and we'll come back to that in a minute. I'm really curious how this whole process was for each of you. So, you know, we heard about this brutal year you had. We heard about Dave being in a lot of denial and not wanting to really see or accept what was happening. I'm imagining that might have caused some conflict between you. Um, just if we could hear maybe from each of you about this, you know, the treatment journey is not just your sons, but it's each of you. One comment I'll make as we've been uh, discussing this in the course of the podcast, we've said we a lot. And I, I think that's critical for the people listening that um, I, I think the only way that we've gotten through this as a family is is collaborating. And I go back to when we had the uh, the police at the house and one of the comments the police officer made was, you don't have to deal with this. You can kick him out. And that ne really never occurred to us. And to this day, I mean, we've been doing this as a, uh, as a we. So... In, in terms of how it affected our relationship, I, th I think we definitely, Lori and I, drew a lot closer together because we were, we were very fearful at, at that point. And we, we were also trying to hide the, um, the whole illness. And we really only felt like we had each other. So I think we had to be very supportive and, and collaborative with each other, each other. And I think it was much easier to be able to go through it together than go through it individually. And I think that's true as well. I think the, the difference in the beginning was that Dave was in denial and I knew something needed to, to happen. And it was hard to go forward just by myself when I didn't really have any control over a psychotic child, mm -hmm. um, young adult. Our son kept threatening not to take medication, and he said he wasn't, he absolutely was not going to do it. And I said to Dave, I am going to tell him that if he doesn't take the medication, he's not living here anymore. And I think we were at odds as far as that ultimatum, but I knew that I was, I, I was so fearful of him not being treated. But I, I also want to agree with Dave in that 
I think that we did come together. I know a lot of people struggle with kids with mental illness as far as different opinions. What should you do? Should you kick them out? Should you stay with them? But I think the thing that kept us on the same page was that we both knew the story the best. We had both lived it. We had seen it. We knew that it would be so hard to go it alone. And I think that was really a something that brought us together. Mm-hmm. How and when did you get the schizophrenia diagnosis? I think the first mention of schizophrenia was at the psychiatric hospital, that the, that was a possible diagnosis. Right. Mm-hmm. And of course, we didn't even know what that meant uh, you know, the I, I think the first thing that people leap to is you know multiple personalities and things like that. And and once we did all of our reading on it, it it made more sense when we understood what the disease was. Mm-hmm. Was there a, a difference in the way you each handled that diagnosis or thought about that? Because again, that's that's a devastating thing to hear about your child and you know, both the chronicity and often the severity and what that might mean for what you thought your son's life might be? I think being naive about it almost made it easier that I didn't know it was going to be so bad. Yeah, if we knew then what we do now about schizophrenia, I think we've been much more panicked. But uh, we didn't really understand what that diagnosis exactly meant. Mm Mm-hmm. During this time of trying to come to grips with his illness and treatment and what this might mean for the future, were you reaching out to other friends and family or support, or were you just sort of weathering this alone? Or what did that look like in terms of your willingness and ability to try to utilize you know, a support system? In the beginning, our girls knew about it. And I think we told the basics to our families, like our parents. I didn't really reach out to friends very much because I was still learning and still coping. I think there were a couple of friends that I shared it with, but we still were in shock. Yeah, and we did share the fact that he was hospitalized with our families, and um, they didn't really understand it. But one of the things that I vividly remember, and one of the reasons we're doing this podcast, is Lori did have a friend who had a son who had some significant challenges, and um, they were just critically important for some direction in terms of a recommendation for a psychiatrist. And, uh, you know, that was really our first lifeline, I think, was these folks, because they had had some experience with it. Mm -hmm. Did you lose any friendships, or did people drift away? Because I can imagine, you know, when... And what's scarier than having something awful happen to a child? And, you know, I've heard this with some families I've worked with, say, who've lost a fam- or lost a child to death or suicide, that they sometimes feel people pulling away and it might be out of fear or just pe- people not knowing what to say or what to do. And so they inadvertently 
just kind of default and pull away. And so that, that leaves the family that's um, suffering, just feeling more alone and abandoned. I definitely saw that with some family members. I think a lot of them just didn't believe it was really true. And they thought, well, that can't be it. It's got to be something else. Well, you should look at this cause as a problem. You should, they, they would tell me, have you tried this treatment? Have you tried doing this? Have you tried doing that? And Dave and I were pretty much, and our girls were pretty much the only ones that knew that this was the real diagnosis. And we were trying to survive because of A, B, and C. I would say I became a lot closer to my friends and several people who had kids with mental illness. That's a definite positive thing that came from all of it. But I think we still have family members that don't agree with our treatment in that he doesn't really have schizophrenia. Mm. Do you think they don't think he has a bona fide psychiatric illness? or Yes. Yeah. I think they, they think that. Mm. I think... I also will say that there are friends of his that have backed off just because they haven't known what to do. And personally, I think that I was that way before I had a child with mental illness. I didn't know anything. I didn't know how to support them. I, I didn't know what to do. So I, I guess I have extra grace for some of those folks who have just backed off and not known what to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What were some of the most helpful things that your friends or family did to get you through this? Number one thing for me was them sharing their stories. Mm-hmm. Because what I found is when I shared things about our family's issues and our son with mental illness, they were willing to share and they were extremely vulnerable and they were almost relieved that someone else had similar problems. Mm-hmm. That was really helpful. The fact that um, we've been through this, we can relate a lot more easily to those different families. And, you know, when you do share a little bit, you find that um, other people have challenges. They may be slightly or significantly different challenges, but but challenges nonetheless. Yeah. Do you feel like you two had different coping and grieving processes through this? I think in the beginning, my coping was to just... just pray that it would change and that it would improve. I just was very emotional. Dave really isn't that emotional of a person. I was the emotional one. But my coping was to share with other people mm-hmm. all along. I wanted to be vulnerable because I wanted that to help. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of my coping, um, there was lots and lots and lots of prayer. Uh, absolutely, in order to uh, to weather the storm. And uh, I certainly feel like I grew in my faith going through the, the whole journey. Um, didn't have as many conversations, but I was affirmed by um, some of our, our friends that had children that had issues. And I, I was a lot more sensitive to their challenges and, and interested in their challenges after knowing what um, what I had been through. So it's, it's definitely a, a badge of honor, and it's important to, uh, to support the network. And I remember um, Lori did uh, go to a NAMI. Uh, yes, I did. Hugely uh, helpful. Did you do the family to family? Yes. Mm-hmm. I did that class with a friend who had another son, uh, or had a son with mental health issues. Mm-hmm. 
and I felt that was the best healer to talk to a class full of parents who have had other family members go through various different mental health issues. Mm-hmm. A, a big aha for me too, and we've both done a lot of reading about the the disease since then. And I always thought when it came to mental illness that mental illness manifested itself early and you'd be able to recognize that um, as, a, uh, as an adolescent or a teenager or what have you. I had no idea that there were illnesses that wouldn't manifest themselves till a kid was in their early 20s. So that was, I, I think, one of the things that encouraged my denial because I, I didn't understand that was possible. And, and as you said, he'd been so social and engaging and athletic and yeah, I mean the world graduate the world was his oyster, mm-hmm. and you know it just seemed like he had uh, and there are always bumps in the road for for kids, but the bumps in the road were were few, and you know we uh, it was probably the biggest challenge in my coping was resetting my expectations for what his his life could be. Because, you know, it, it seemed like he was pushing all the right buttons and, and had all the, all the skills that would just, you know, make him um, successful. And, and he was a very social kid, so relationally successful. And I, I think that's probably one of the hardest coping challenges was completely resetting those expectations and understanding um, what's what's now possible. Mm-hmm. current hopes and expectations for him, knowing who he is, what he's been through, what his treatment courses look like? So there was certainly originally an expectation for a, uh, you know, a high paying job and uh, family and, and all sorts of, of interesting experiences and so forth. I think the expectations have been reset now that we want him to be happy. And we're of the opinion that part of happiness is is fulfillment on a regular basis and, and contributing to society. And it's been very difficult for our son to, um, to be employed. Mm-hmm. So we've... Uh, uh, he's had some some job experiences. We would love to get him to a regular part time job, or maybe aspirationally even a uh, a full time role if it were if it were right. But that's that's probably the um, the key thing that we'd like to see, and and of course independent living. Um, so uh, today he's he's still with us and. In terms of how the future looks with that, it would be nice if if he could become independent. So, but in order to facilitate that, uh, you need to be able to pay the bills and and so forth. So, um, we'll we'll see if if he can achieve that. Yeah, I wonder even though if we could talk about the goal of happy because you know a lot of people come to see me and I'll ask them you know what are your goals and so many people say I want to be happy and and I always push back on that because you know what does that mean? So I'm wondering. For your son, when you think about 
expectations and hopes and what quote unquote happy would look like for him. I feel like that would mean confidence in himself that he could contribute to society and he would feel like he had a purpose, that he was helping others. And I just, I don't care what job he has. I just want him to feel good about himself and help others in some way. And I, if I could find a way to get him to, to, to find that purpose, I think it would be very healing. Mm-hmm. I wonder though, thinking about schizophrenia, one of the things that's so affected is, is will, is volition. And so I think one of the things that can be so painful for families is to realize that their formerly really motivated son or daughter doesn't really have that drive. And so you could imagine saying to your son, you know, what can you imagine for purpose or what can you imagine that would bring meaning? And it could be that that question just drops like a lead balloon. Mm -hmm. um, Or I want to say to him, wouldn't you like to be out of our house on your own? But I don't know that he would say, oh, I'm dying to get out of here. Because yeah, like you say, I don't think he would. no, I don't think he would. Even though before he would have been happy to be out of the house. Mm-hmm. But anyone else his age would say, are you kidding me? Live at home with my parents? Yeah. I wonder too, you know, this, Dave, you just said about living independently as a goal. I really think if we asked your son here, like, is it a goal of your short or long term to live independently? I don't know that he would say yes. My sense is he might say things are okay with you and status quo is good. He has said it before, but he kind of goes in waves. He'll say, or I'll say to him, you know, these are things that need to be important um, for the time that you have your own place. And he thinks about it, but he never goes any further. Yeah. And I think part of it too is we know so much about his his illness and what he experiences on a daily basis and we're we're sympathetic to that. And it would it would be difficult. It it's even difficult right now for for him to relate with his his friends. And um there are some that still reach out to him occasionally, but it's hard for them to relate because they they just don't understand what's going through his mind because he's a completely different person than he was when he was uh, 20 or 21 years old. Mm -hmm. son came to see me you know my original goal was to get him on clozapine and let's start with what you've seen get better on clozapine what kinds of thoughts and behaviors and and what has not gotten better and then i think we could shift back to this discussion of sort of goals and expectations i think one of the biggest thing i've noticed is that he went from being it it was just really scary that he didn't really have love um, that he could express, even though he was on other antipsychotic medications, he was still angry. He he just didn't have a relief of the relentless thoughts that were overpowering his mind. And um, he actually, when he was on clozapine, started to be more loving, more caring, more empathetic, more willing to participate. 
um, more connected to you, more connected. It was, it was amazing. Mm -hmm. So grateful. Yeah. And a key point for people who might be listening that are, are considering clozapine or starting clozapine, clozapine is a journey. And your, your initial experience with clozapine is the kid is, is going to be sleeping all day. It's just so sedating. And you just wonder if, if, if this is ever going to manifest itself as, as a reasonable treatment. And what we've found after, you know, being uh, him being on the, the clozapine now, for um what is it seven years Mm -hmm. that he's really grown accustomed to it and and there of course is some monitoring lab monitoring that has to go on so there are uh, blood draws and so forth that um that have to occur but when i look back to where it was initially it probably took six to nine months for it to to really start showing its true benefits and it's been years that it's it's taken to to see the genuine benefits. And I think now he realizes the benefits of it. In the beginning he he said, "Well, this isn't going to help. It's not doing anything." I think he knows now that which is some form of insight, I guess, mm-hmm. that he knows he needs it and he notices that if he ever forgets it that it, that he should yeah, realize my sense is he is fine with taking it now. Yes. He, he doesn't resist. He, you know, doesn't. some of my people with really severe illness will take their meds, but will you know, if they're honest, they'll say, I don't have an illness or this med does nothing, or I only do this because you want me to. But, you know, I think your son would say, no, th- this does help. In the beginning, that was the way he was. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he's at a different point now. I'd yeah. Say. yeah. What do you feel like has not gotten better? In, in what ways is he still symptomatic or suffering? Well, the thing that we certainly notice is um, he's best earlier in the day, and as as you get toward the end of the day, the the value of the med starts to diminish, and it gets more difficult for him. And one of the more recent things that have, has manifested itself for him have been headaches, and he perceives that that headaches are the result of his unacceptable thoughts that he's having about some particular topic and he'll he'll experience these headaches and attribute them to other things or other people or what have you that are are imposing these these headaches on him so he'll he'll experience that and that was the thing that derailed the last job that he had were these um, these headache issues so we've been trying to uh, work through that and maybe identified some potential causes and trying to see if we can uh, get past those. Mm-hmm. I will say too, um, he still feels like we're all part of a connected world. He still says that same thing. He still thinks sometimes I'm trying to influence him. Like in a sinister, sinister way. Yeah. Like a, or just, a... you knew I was coming out of the room and, and, and you stopped the thought I was having. Mm-hmm. Some of those things, I know he still has the psychotic things going on or um, thoughts. Thoughts are always overwhelming to him, but he he's he's not rageful about it. He'll usually say, I'm sorry, Mom, I know that that, that sounded harsh or whatever, whereas before it, that would have never happened. So he's aware that it's he, he's not trying to be cruel when he says that, but 
he he still does it. Those mm-hmm. things still exist. Yeah, and he's still, and we've been battling this in recent months, he's still, particularly when he leaves the house, he feels like he's kind of under barrage mm-hmm. of sort of almost like inner energetic thought influencing that there are sort of powers or... Correct. Yeah, that, that are taking over if, his mind and affecting his thoughts. Well, influencing him is the mm-hmm. way I describe it. So if he's driving down the road or, or riding in the car down the road, he'll, he'll see another vehicle or some sort of a sign or something, and he will have an interpretation of that, and that interpretation is, is negative. And, but it's uh, so much better. It, it's, 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 yeah. it is much better, but uh, he still does experience that, and uh, we haven't really come up with a, a way to get around that, but that's what he deals with on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. I wonder if your son were sitting here and I were to ask him, what are your goals for treatment or life or hopes or expectations? I wonder if he, the number one thing he might say is to stop the influencing of my mind is basically to have these remaining symptoms go away. That's exactly what he would say. You know, Dave, you mentioned him wishing that he could be happy or have purpose, but I think I'm guessing he would say, I want, I, what I most want is these bad things to go away. Like that would be, that would, I don't know if that make him happy, but that would make him a lot relieved. relieved. Yeah. He said many times, why me? Why am I the only person yeah. who has all these influences? It's almost like peace. Like if he could put words to exactly. that, like what he most wants maybe isn't happiness or purpose is peace. Yes. Yeah. And it's so hard for him to find peace. Yeah. yeah. What are your, now given you know how far he's come, but what he still struggles with, what are your main parenting challenges, your main challenges in trying to support him? I'll, I'll start by saying I think the, the biggest challenge is, is knowing what to do from here and how to contribute to his improvement is, and you know, there's certainly a perspective and maybe some of our family members hold this that, that there needs to be tougher love. And that we need to challenge him to to do some uh, some things, and and that may be part of it. But it's a it's such a balancing act because we we see him every day and we we have a much better feel for what he goes through than than anyone else. And um, yeah, my sense is like quote unquote tough love might just like crank up these headaches. And lead to just like a breakdown, because Potentially, again, as we've sure. talked about, yeah, you know, I see these headaches as kind of a manifestation of his overwhelm. That you know, um, you talked about that this idea that by the end of the day his meds don't work as well, which could be, um, or it could be that by the end of the day he's just so Tired. exhausted with fighting the thoughts and the kind of barrage of influence and just everything that's coming careening in his sensory system. And his thoughts that just by the end of the day, he's just spent, which sometimes manifests as a 
terrible headache. Yeah. And you think about him being on his own, if he's experiencing that on his own, without us, without friends, who does he talk to? Mm -hmm. That's a little scary for us, too. So it's, it's the not knowing what we should be doing. Should we be tougher on this issue? Should we force him to try it? Should we, you know, do a trial basis? It's, there's no right answer. And the other thing I was going to say is that every day is a new day with issues that he has. Nothing, there's no day that we can predict what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Sometimes he's more comfortable going out, interacting with others. Other times he wants to stay at home. So there's no predictability. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like you two are on the same page with support and, you know, whatever, playing hard with him versus, you know, pushing him versus letting him just be and move towards what he wants to move towards? I'd say I'm the one that wants to give it a trial to let him try to be on his own and see how he does. I'm not sure if Davis is there yet. On his own? You mean like in his own Live apartment? on his own, oh, okay. yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm supportive of doing that if if he's in a better place where where he can function. And I don't see a lot of merit in setting him up in a separate place and spending a lot of money on doing that if, if he can't support himself. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess that's, that's one of the things that maybe holds me back a little bit. I'd, I'd like to see him have, have a steady job and, and at least some money coming in and, and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. How do you two think about the future? with your son, um, both the near and longer term future, what happens when you're gone, financial support, emotional support, psychiatric treatment, how much have you thought about that or planned for that? Well, uh, I, I think we've given it um, some thought in, in terms of our, of our will and whether uh, our son's capable of, of managing his own finances and so forth. And I think everybody has to make those decisions on their own, whether, you, whether you're just going to, you know, if you have four kids, if you're just going to split it between the four kids, or if you're going to put one or two of them in a trust where their, uh, their portion of their inheritance is somewhat managed by someone else. I mean, these are all decisions that, um, that you have to think through. And, and, and maybe a treatment open. guardian. You know, Absolutely. Who, who might step in when you two are gone to either make or help your son make medical decisions. Absolutely. I didn't know there was such a thing. Mm-hmm. Because I do worry about it because I don't want the responsibility to fall upon our daughters. Mm-hmm. That's huge for me. And and that's been a key thing in terms of our ability to maintain the rapport. We've always been able to get our son to sign the document that says that information can be shared by the doctor with Lori and I. And you know, if you can accomplish one thing, you know, stay with them in the process. And all of it, I would say 98% of the psychiatric visits that we've had as he's gone through this illness have been family visits. And from what I understand, that's unusual. You'd have to comment on that. But I think looking at this as a family, as opposed to just putting all the onus and all the responsibility on the patient has been one of the success factors for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really appreciate how the two of you always come to his appointments. And yet to answer your question, I would say with my patients with the most severe illnesses, at least one parent almost always comes. 
That's awesome. Yeah. But, you know, there's some selection bias there that, you know, the people that come to see me, you know, an out-of-network private practice psychiatrist are almost by definition people with family support. Hmm. And then you wonder, well, I guess you see it on the streets of, of America, how many people with severe illnesses like schizophrenia and addiction who have either lost family support or alienated their families or just out there alone with nothing. Yes. Yeah, uh, and, and that's the thing that I am, am so concerned about in terms of treating schizophrenia long-term. We've, we've found clozapine. Clozapine really works for our son. It's been a very successful drug, but it is not trivial. You, you have to do these, uh, these lab draws and, and watch for these potential issues that can develop with the blood. And it, it really takes some commitment and some time investment. And I don't know how you'd take a, an individual on the street and, and ever have any success with, with clozapine around that. So my hope is that that the drug companies will continue to do development and maybe come up with a, um, a drug that has the, the capabilities of clozapine without the, the side effects. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. So you I make think- a good point. To be on clozapine, you, you have to have family buttressing you. You have to, to monitor you taking it to get you to your blood draws to... You know, it, it is a high intervention treatment. Um, our son has come a long way doing that himself. He knows when he's getting low. He knows he has to make the lab appointment. He does that. He calls in, renews the med, and sometimes we'll pick it up. So he, I think that he might be able to do that eventually on his own. Mm-hmm. But he's come a long way there. Yeah, come a long way. each learned through this treatment journey? I would say the thing I've learned the most is that when you personally go through suffering, the best thing that comes out of it is helping other people. Mm. And like I said before, people are so willing to share vulnerabilities about themselves when they know that you have shared and nothing about you is perfect. So... That's my, my goal is to, to be there and support other people and share what I've learned and hope to help them through this. It's a really, really tough journey. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the uh, key thing that I've learned, um, number one, um, I, I'm a pretty analytical guy. And when you take a medicine, I expect a medicine to work and to do what you expect it to do. And in most of the medical world, um, it, it does exactly that. So if you have high blood pressure or whatever, you take a statin and um, a statin works just the same for you as it does for me. Well, it was shocking to me to find that all of these mental health drugs work differently for different people. So that was a shock. Um, the other thing 
that I wish I would have known was what a marathon having a child with a mental health illness is. And, and that's my message to folks who might be listening to this who are just starting mental health treatment for a, a child with schizophrenia is um, it's going to take some time to, to get through this. I, we've, we've been doing this now for over a decade and uh, we've learned a lot. You've got to you've got to read and study and be a little bit of of an advocate for your your child, and or a lot of an advocate. A lot of an advocate, <laughs> <laughs> and you you have to you have to stay engaged. And um, it's it's going to be a journey. But um, I don't want people to think that it's all negative. Because our son, we really do have him back, and we appreciate the fact that we have that empathy again, and that you know he he'll call his sister on her birthday, hmm. and you know there there was a point in time when uh, that that couldn't be imagined. So, and you may have to um, ratchet down your expectations. I'm I'm not going to argue that, but if if you stay the course and you and you support them, you'll get there. One to one, we have to be open with people that that we have a family member that has mental health issues because when you talk to people, you find the majority of people do. Mm-hmm. One final question. This is a difficult question. One of the things I see a lot is parents who have uh, an adolescent or young adult child who, with severe mental illness who absolutely refuses meds. And again, that was your son's case in the beginning, but then after that second hospitalization, he got on board. But I'm wondering, I mean, do you have any thoughts or ideas for for parents who are trying to deal with a kid with a really severe illness where the kids are adamantly against medication? I guess for us, I felt we were lucky that those things happened as far as him being taken because that was the only thing that got him to do it. But I would say... Go to organize taken by the police. Yes, yeah. taken by the police. Yeah. Otherwise, he wouldn't listen to it. Nothing we did would convince him, and we were not legally allowed to force him to do anything. But I will say that talking to other parents who have maybe, you know, in, Nami has a bunch of people that can talk to you about what worked for them. I don't know. I just felt like we were we were blessed that we didn't have to force them to do it. I know it's horrible. It was the like I said, it was the worst thing ever in my life. Yeah, that um, I understand. That was that was a an incredible challenge, and I think the only reason that it worked for us is that our our nuclear family has always been very close, and it ultimately came down to trust. and And he he trusted what. Um, what we were telling him. And, you know, we had enough deposits in the bank with him that um, he trusted that we had his his well-being in mind. But the, the other thing that I don't want to minimize is our son's mental illness manifested itself in the in the 20s. And from what I've read, it's much harder as it manifests itself much earlier. So we we already had an adult level rapport with him. So I think that that he when he made the decision, he was he was thinking not only about our influence, but he was thinking about 
how it would work out for him long term. And he was really making maybe more of a me decision when, you know, he thought about the fact that this could have an impact long term on his career. He still, at that point in time, he, he wasn't that long out of college and, you know, maybe still had some, some career aspirations and so forth. So that, that maybe helped a little bit, but, you know, I, I think it all comes back to trust. I want to thank both of you so much for joining me. I think this episode is going to help a lot of people. And again, of all the really difficult stuff I see in my office, I think this is arguably as hard as it gets to have a child who's just about at the point to launch off into their life and develop a terrible mental illness. I mean, it just is one of the most devastating things. And, and you know, I just want to commend you, Lori, that how much you were able to reach out to other people. That's something I'm always urging people to do. But, you know, there's so much shame and there's so much worry. How will I be judged? What will people say? Will they question our parenting? But I think you've, you found what I've found is that when we're willing to open our hearts and be vulnerable, that 99 times out of 100, the people around us will experience that as a gift and, and open up their own stuff and that we can actually get closer to each other, you know, in our times of pain. As always, Chris and I love to hear your comments, your story ideas, or questions, and you can reach us through my website, craigheacockmd.com. And a little bitty but super important ask for each of you. Won't you each take just a minute right now, write a review on iTunes or whatever podcast platform you're using. More reviews lead to more visibility for Back from the Abyss and thus more people all over the world being able to hear these stories. Thanks so much.